There's a magical scene in the story, Hand Against the Horn, where so many threads come together, above and below, life and death, the natural world and the world of the spirit, hope and humor, the communion of saints, small s, and community of friends. We meet four folks in the car they call Big Blue. Afternoon sunlight filtered through the windshield, anointing the statue in its glow. Both St. Christopher and the child Jesus on his shoulder seemed to smile. Some days I feel like my grandmother is near, said M.K. I know what you mean. I can feel Aloysius, too. There are days I feel I can talk with the two of them, said Mrs. Pavinsky. That's what happens when we get close to the checkout. It means you need to get out of the house more, said Stump. The VFW has bingo on Friday night. We should go. We can give you a ride, said Colleen. They have a fish fry, what with Lent, and we can... Stump paused in mid-sentence. Look at those Canada geese. They're so early this year. The birds rose from the river, flapping wings and forming a V-shape. Global weirding spat, Colleen. The flock ascended, and Mrs. Pavinsky fixed her gaze skyward. The geese flew higher and shrank to the size of bats in a coal mine. She elected not to tell the others what she'd come to understand. Loved ones welcomed her to the other side. They awaited her arrival, and she looked forward to joining them. But not quite yet. So you'll go with me to bingo, said Stump. The birds swooped down, growing large as they soared over tree limbs. Mrs. Pavinsky felt bold. She relished the here and now. It wasn't her time to depart, not for a while at any rate. How best to announce her realization. The geese honked. Mrs. Pavinsky reached across the seat toward the steering wheel, much like she stretched when playing the organ and pressed her hand against the horn. Big Blue honked. That's for Aloysius and your grandmother. They need to hear I'm staying put. M.K. grinned and pumped the horn, too. Colleen and Stump laughed. Then, like a choir heavy with altos, the Canada geese gathered force and trumpeted their refrain. Honk! Honk! Mrs. Pavinsky clapped, pleased to herald the sound. We just spoke about four passengers in the car in this scene, but really, there are five. When M.K. inherited Big Blue from her grandmother, St. Christopher came along for the ride. And somehow he keeps alive for the whole crew, a sense that there's just something more than what we see around us. And though he's on the dashboard, it's the women who are in the driver's seat, navigating the rough roads of life, the anthracite highway and all that has come to mean. They have courage, compassion, a touch of craziness, and perhaps most important, the wisdom to let go when the time is right. Nancy McKinley is a founding fiction faculty member at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre, 
where she teaches in the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing. She is the author of Travels with a Nuclear War, which won the Thayer Fellowship in the Arts, and she is a recipient of the Newhouse Award from the John Gardner Foundation. St. Christopher on Pluto has been issued by West Virginia University Press. Now based in Colorado, Nancy McKinley has lived here in northeastern Pennsylvania, and she calls St. Christopher on Pluto her love song to the region. Nancy will be part of Lit Fest at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre on Monday, June 20th at 7, out under a tent on the Fenner Quadrangle on the Wilkes campus. And before that, she will read from St. Christopher on Pluto this coming Thursday, June 16th, at 5.30 in the afternoon at the Tunkhannock Public Library on West Tioga Street. There will be a question and answer and open mic to follow. We have an interview now with Nancy from January 2020 on Art Scene. I was actually very shy in elementary school. I didn't ever speak unless called upon to speak. And we had a sister, Julia Agnes, had us write stories in third grade. And many individuals would read theirs aloud, and I never did. I never. And so she called on me to start reading my stories aloud. And suddenly everyone wanted me on their kickball team at recess. <laughs> so that was when it started to click. The Sisters of St. Joseph, they were stern, weren't they? Very stern. But they also had uh, a humorous side as well. And many were here from Ireland, so they were homesick. They were very young women and very dedicated. And overall, I had a, a great education with them. Yes, they could be very stern. They could be tough on the boys. <laughs> but I feel fortunate. They helped me on my path. And, of course, a love for storytelling and yes. the language, right? Yeah, absolutely. Loved of story. Not too much time on science or math, but great lovers of history and often reinvention of history as they wanted it and encouraged us to do the same. So that's in third grade. But when did it become something that you said, oh? At middle school age, so seventh, eighth grade, I entered some contests and wrote one essay on... What Americanism Means to Me, sponsored by Rotary. And I wrote about my great-grandmother coming to the States. And when she arrived, she found out her husband had died and had 10 children. And they took up a collection for her. Um, and she got work in the thread mills. And they discovered she could do books. And she so she worked in the office, but the sound of the thread mills robbed her of her hearing. And her one joy in life was going to the silent movies. And she'd go every Friday night, but once they started making talkies, no more. So I wrote that story <laughs> and won money. <laughs> so I was hooked on writing and then did well in high school, joined the school newspaper, the literary magazines, would enter different competitions. And my teachers were always very encouraging. As you're becoming more mature... Was there one writer or were you reading somebody who was definitive in this whole picture? I can remember reading the short stories of Catherine Ann Porter, and then she elaborated into the novel Ship of Fools. My mother and grandmother spoke about the love of her work as well, and suddenly I was included in the adult conversation, and I liked her portrayal of small-town life, really. And you excel at that. I'm sure I'm not wrong. You love these people. I do. 
But I love Northeast Pennsylvania. And I think it reflects my time. I raised my children here. I you know, really found myself as an individual and as a professional. So I think that that was a brain food for what I was doing. It's not, not in there specifically in what I'm writing, but it just fueled my process. And what do you feel, what has convinced you or what is important to you as a writer in terms of creating a place as alive and as real as you do, for example? I think it's very important to show the diversity of voices. There are not stereotypes about places. And I believe what really set this area off for me is that there's humor and hope in the struggle. And I think it's very important for people to realize that it's too easy to write it in a different fashion. Certainly, the conversation that we have at this time in our lives in this country, we get a sense of this particular demographic of people, and it's so easy to dismiss yes. them or say they're all this or they're all that. And that's not the case. You make them real and complex and show us moral dilemmas and the humor, definitely the humor. But you're not afraid to go to those hard places. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. No, and I think that's important and it's part of balance and I suppose it reflects my life view. And I'm very glad that West Virginia University Press chose to publish the book, that I found a home there because they are very much committed to bringing forth those voices. And they, I think, are one of the foremost publishers of literature as well as academic work dealing with Appalachia. And if we think of this area as the northern brow of Appalachia and some of the economic trials that are associated with that culture, I'm especially pleased the book found a home there. There is an article on the Wilkes site by a student of yours who said you sent him out into the streets and he was to tell you everything he could about downtown Wilkes-Barre. Why do you think that's a good exercise? For- I, I you know, and I continue to do that exercise. I teach the class for the incoming writers in the MA, MFA graduate program. And so much of the time we have to shut down our senses so we can go about our business. Otherwise, we'd be overwhelmed. And so I asked them to think of all the senses, sight, sound, touch, taste, smell, and to look for images and to look for examples of urban blight and urban beauty, because I think that is so encapsulated in the area. And I'm always amazed every time I'm in Wilkes-Barre, I see something new. And uh, I think it's important to write the world we inhabit. Because that's real, isn't it? That, that is real. And it's important to document that, uh, to celebrate it, to recognize flaws with the hope of perhaps changing. And I suppose that exercise grew out of some photography classes I heard about in Wilmington, Delaware, where students were asked to go out. And then they used those projects to try to bring about positive change. And certainly that is part of my mission to reach out to underserved groups. When it comes to writing, whether it be a novel or a short story or even a poem, we often talk about it metaphorically as a journey that the author is inviting us mm-hmm. on some sort of journey, whether it be a geographical travelogue mm-hmm. or whether it be an emotional journey or something. But we often speak about it in those terms. But you really do. We're on a journey indeed. <laughs> in big blue, no less. <laughs> you know forms so well. How is it that you decided that this was the way to present this material? Well, I, I 
personally think of it as a novel in stories because there's a narrative arc and there there is a sense of fruition as we travel through a sense of completion. It is not chronological, but many books today are not chronological. And I think that helps to present an entire composite, an entire view. Stories can be read alone and out of order, but it's a different experience if you read it chronologically. And you open by introducing us not only to two characters, but I'd say three, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes, and I love Big Blue just as I love MK and Colleen. (laughs) It's clear you do. Uh, Absolutely a personality and the breathing. (laughs) Introduce our listeners who may not yet have had the book, not to Colleen and MK, but to... Big Big Blue is a car, and the character of MK inherited it from her grandmother. Her grandmother purchased the car after her husband died. No one knew she even had a license. And when MK was, you know, a preteen, her grandmother showed up in this big old blue car wearing a pantsuit of the same color. MK was the only one who was thrilled. She marches around the car with her grandmother. And the grandmother said, someday this will be yours. And so, hence the connection. And the lovely thing is that it's so much a car of this area. Yes. Yes, you will see Big Blue on many of these roads, 29, 81, (laughs) the expressway. So, yes, and it being ever patched together again. The Buick. Yes, and and it is not to be left on some junkyard or some (laughs) coal debris to rot away. No, not going to happen. And there's a little teeny, almost clothespin-like passenger, in addition to MK and Colleen. the dash, uh, a statue of St. Christopher that was put there with a peel and stick by her grandmother, and she replaces it every so often and is quite distraught that St. Christopher lost his feast day, more or less deposed. But here, people celebrate the protector of travelers, and she sees other, you know, people with this on her car, and I felt it was very important to recognize how that icon speaks to the culture. Did you choose the title? I did, but I was in Danville, Pennsylvania, talking with my sister-in-law, Diane, and her sister-in-law, Gail, and I was talking about the book, and I was saying, I'm trying to come up with this title, this and that, and they were digging in the dirt, and they said, well, just say St. Christopher on Pluto, because at that time I was also noting how the poor planet Pluto had been deposed, demoted, How you know, and I just think it speaks metaphorically to some of this. And we do meet people of the cloth yes. throughout, and the organ is a very important voice. Yes. And Mrs. Pavinsky, one of the elderly characters in the book, stretches all over to keep playing the organ. She's been doing it since she was 20 at Our Lady of Perpetual Help Church, and everyone knows her. And maybe she's going a little deaf and forgets what she's playing while at the keyboard. But no matter, she continues on and is quite insulted if Colleen or any other character suggests she should start over or has lost her place. This is just the way it is, and everyone accepts how she plays her music. And it's a wonderful moment when we get the acknowledgement that the area is changing And one of the cues is the music when Mm -hmm. the accordion polka becomes the Latin sounds. And yet there is that commonality. Yes. Yeah. And a fusion of sound, I guess we would call it. Yes. Mrs. Pavinsky's husband always played the accordion and 
Uh, then after he died, she tried to pick it up. But most people said, I'll stick to the organ. And then when her neighbors who are Latina immigrants move in and he plays the accordion, she has him play her deceased husband's instrument. And it's, um, it's a, a moment, a, tri- a shift, transformative moment for all involved. In this destination for immigrants. Where they've had polka fests, and now there's the fusion with the Latin music. And I think of this area as um, so connected to festivals. And it is a way of communicating and for moments of transformation as well. And that's part of this sense of hope. Yes. One chapter or story begins with a sense of HIV AIDS? No. Is that right? How is that possible? And those sorts of things that are every bit a part of mm-hmm. this area. Yes. So these lives are real and physical. They're gritty, hard details for people, and I don't shy away from that. And I think it's important to look at the totality and the social problems and issues that individuals face on a daily basis. And the humor isn't necessarily whistling past the graveyard, is it? No. I I think it speaks to the spirit. The one thing that can't be taken away from people is their humor. And for many, that's a life a life vest, a lifesaver. It buoys the spirit in ways we can't predict, yet we know that it happens. We start out and we meet a writer who is going to do the great novel. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe took a class, but hasn't put a pen to paper or a pencil to paper. Took a class at Boscov's, at the community center, no less. Yes. So, yes, and and this is something I hear as a writing teacher and as a writer all the time, and individuals tell me how this is going. And it's it's a, a source of humor, but it is a reality for many as well. So, And many people talk about the novel they write in their head without ever getting it to paper. So I was playing on that with Colleen. And there is a sadness, though, about the closure of stores and bookstores mm-hmm. and a very funny situation as the place is closing, but it's significant. Yes. MK and Colleen work at a mall that's going bankrupt and it's closing and just pick up the newspaper today. And malls are closing. And it's a change in cultures, but it also speaks to downturn economics and, you know, a gap between haves and half-nots. How do you talk about the friendship between MK and Colleen? Well, they were friends as little girls. And Colleen is a character with inconsistencies that I find engaging rather than off-putting. And they knew each other as little girls. By high school, Colleen went to Votech. And MK went to prep. They separated, went their separate ways, and then returned to the area, both having divorced, both having to shape their lives and reconnect. For Colleen, it's just they pick up right where they left off. MK's a little more reflective. MK calls out Colleen on her grandiose schemes. And Colleen keeps telling MK she needs to change and become more helpful and more centered And so they have a a lot of play going back and forth on that good-hearted play. And MK can wisecrack a bit at Colleen, and Colleen goads her on, and they develop a rapport. What kinds of things does Big Blue suggest in their story and in your telling of their journeying? Well, Big Blue witnesses 
the change in culture, the economic hard times, Big Blue guides them to each of their endeavors where they connected the Our Lady of Perpetual Help Community Center and throughout Northeast PA, you know, commenting about when coal was king and the farms thrived and before, you know, the closure of various factories and the women's garment industry. And so Big Blue provides social commentary on what's been happening and yet helps them to move ahead. We have a little repartee about eating and diet and so <laughs> forth. Yes. yes, the women are constantly on diets. And Colleen says, you know, she can't help it if she inherited large genes. And MK says, well, wait a minute, you're Irish. You know, you grow, your relatives grew up with potato famine. How could they ever get large? But no matter, Colleen just charges on. And yet, when you mention festivals and so forth, food and eating and that community sense is so important. Right. And so suddenly we have both pierogies and empanadas at a festival meal. So again, moments of transition and transformation. But you make us feel that it's not just people's crossing their arms and saying, us and them. Not at all. It's the interaction of people working together, trying to communicate and fording a community. And I think it's very important to realize that despite the difficulties we see neighbors who are looking out for one another, reaching out to help one another, and affirming life. We often don't think of ourselves as having much to offer. It's only northeastern Pennsylvania. What do you think we have to offer at this moment in this world? The great resource of the indomitable human spirit, number one. Beautiful, rich, natural landscape with the Pennsylvania Forest, the Susquehanna River, the longest non-navigable river in the United States. It's so beautiful. Um, and a sense of history. It hasn't been in the structures and the develop much of the development. It hasn't become saccharine like so much of the U.S. You can walk into a town and you could be anywhere. But here it speaks to the heritage, especially all the churches and the ethnicity imbued in the churches. That's very unique and special to this area. And it does say so much about the solidarity because there was no social safety yes. net, right? Correct. And the churches often played that role. Yes, indeed. And, and yet they are changing as new groups arrive. What about the sense of the senior citizen and you treat aging beautifully? We see how there are seniors who want to stay in their homes and are trying to find their way to do that, and are discovering there are ways within the community, not easily, but there is always the mention of the different care centers in the area as well. And when we're out there on the trail, Tiffany's been knocked down in the marathon and is confused. Where are the runners? Where are the walkers? And this sense of suddenly, I want to go home. Yes. And, and I think... For many individuals in small towns all over the U.S., not just in some of the small towns around here, but there's always this push-pull of leaving, staying, and where is home? Where are the roots? And the, and the importance of finding roots wherever they may be. As I read along in the book, I thought, ooh, I'd love to hear Nancy read that section. But the important thing is, what would you like to read? I thought when we talked to as coming in, it's almost January 6th, the Epiphany, Three Kings Day. I grew up 
being told it was Little Christmas, and we would get our big gift on Little Christmas because my mother would actually shop after Christmas to get things on sale. We didn't know. We just thought it was the greatest part of the holiday. So I thought I'd read the opening of Navidad. Colleen yanks open the passenger door of Big Blue, rattling me on the car as she hoists herself onto the seat. Instead of her usual black attire, chosen for its supposed slimming effect, she wears a red sweater matched by a voluminous skirt that cascades over her knees. Ho, ho, you like, she asks. Her fingers tug at silver garland, edging the hem. My skirt was half price at Salvo. I smile, knowing how Colleen takes pride in snagging deals at the Salvation Army thrift store. It's handmade, but the seams aren't finished. No clasp at the waist, so I use duct tape. And that's when I realize she's wearing one of those round felt covers people put under Christmas trees. I decide not to say anything. She's been a grump ever since she couldn't collect insurance for her car. Where's your holiday spirit, MK? Couldn't you put on something nicer than jeans and a green turtleneck? I point to my necklace. The strand of miniature plastic tree lights is quite festive, if you ask me. But Colleen is on a roll. Are you depressed? She raises her eyebrows, arched like the top parts of candy canes. Lots of people get depressed this time of year. I'm grateful she didn't say divorce people or mention how my daughter, now grown and working in Chicago, had phoned me last week pleased that she bought her own plane ticket to Florida where she'd spent Christmas with my ex. It's Dad's year, reminded Jenna, as if I'd forgotten the arrangement for rotating holiday visits. Sighing, I shift Big Blue from park to drive. The front end shakes as we lurch away from the curb. Big Blue scolds me for yet again agreeing to give Colleen a ride. We're taking Anthracite Expressway to the Community Outreach Center at Our Lady of Perpetual Help Church. Colleen and I no longer belong to the parish, but we went there as kids, and recently she joined their volunteer services. Today is the gift party for children for low-income families. Colleen's not exactly sure how many kids will attend, because the church doesn't require parents to fill out forms like they do at Giving Tree or Toys for Tots. She said that putting names on paper means high risk for people lacking W-2s or green cards. A date with Santa could translate into deportation or jail time. This troubling realization, heightened by visions of poor children being denied presents, prompted me to drive. She pats my arm. What you need is more meaning in your life. That's why we help those less fortunate. Whenever Colleen spews like a self-improvement book, I refuse to respond. Plus, she knows I'm thinking of moving and believes volunteering will make me want to stay where I have roots. I stay put because I don't know where else to go. Nancy McKinley, reading from Navidad, part of the novel in stories, St. Christopher on Pluto, released by West Virginia University Press. Nancy is a founding faculty member of the Wilkes University Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing, she will be reading from her work next Thursday, June 16th at 5.30 p.m. at the Tunkanic Public Library, 220 West Tioga Street in Tunkanic, with a question and answer and open mic to follow. That's tunkaniclibrary.org. For more information, Nancy McKinley, reading from St. Christopher on Pluto, Thursday, June 16th at 5.30 at the Tunkanic Public Library, 220 West Tioga Street, tonkanaclibrary.org.
She will also be featured as part of Lit Fest at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre on Monday, June 20th at 7, out under a tent on the Fenner Quadrangle on the campus. The event is free and open to the public, wilkes.edu slash cw. Nancy McKinley taking part in Lit Fest at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre on Monday, June 20th at 7 on the Fenner Quadrangle on the Wilkes campus. Free and open to the public, wilkes.edu slash cw. Lit Fest is a week-long event for the public that coincides with the June residency of the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing.